All right, Joe, welcome to the Evidently Legal Podcast. We are uh, thrilled to have you on today. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation as well. Great. So, you know, what what I thought we'd do is we'll start with a little bit of your background and hear about your practice and the types of clients you work with, uh, the impact your work has on their lives. And then we'll talk a little bit about sort of, you know, you as the business owner, the firm owner, you know, what what made you make the leap and how you did it and how you're currently running things today. Uh, So why don't we maybe start with uh, you telling folks a little bit about who you are, uh, where you've worked, and the type of work you do. Okay. Uh, Well, uh, as Brian just said, my name is Joe Kramer. Uh, I'm a personal injury attorney based in Chicago. Uh, Because of what I've done in my career, I'm very comfortable litigating in virtually any jurisdiction in the United States. Uh, I know how to uh, coordinate with local counsel and, and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm extremely comfortable doing that. So I'm based in Chicago, but I take cases everywhere. Uh, My firm is four years old, so I I don't have cases in all 50 states yet, Uh, but you have to start somewhere. And so I'll get a little bit more into my background now. Uh, I started my career working for a plaintiff's mega firm in Manhattan, had offices all over the nation. The firm's name was Napoli Byrne, Ripka Skolnick. I think we had about 90 lawyers and, you know, for, for people on the defense side, they, they scoff at a, a 90 lawyer firm because they have 2,500, you know, uh, but, but, but on the plaintiff side, that, that's a behemoth. And, uh, you know, we were, we were in really, really big litigation. I got very lucky. Um, Mark Byrne brought me on and he, uh, Hunter Skolnick and myself litigated uh, Actos together uh, I was the the uh, discovery guy, and you know I, I was very good at that. And we were ended up we ended up being selected as trial counsel on a case. So I got to be part of a trial team and billion dollar at stake litigation. Uh, that firm actually uh, made some headlines in the New York Post because the the owners of that firm, you know, uh, they don't do anything small, including, you know, breaking up. And uh, it it sort of became clear that it was probably a good idea to find another place to work. And uh, the the state lead counsel for the Actos litigation, Tor Herman, um, you know, I I quit my job and not having any idea (laughs) of where to go, but, you know, he was my first call and he said, uh, yeah, we, we would love to have you aboard. So I, I went over to Tor's firm, uh, his, his firm is Tor Herman Law, a national firm, a really hardworking boutique mass tort lead litigation firm. I mean, they lead litigations. All of the attorneys there are extremely bright, really, really hardworking guys. And I was there uh, for two years, eight months, got to try uh, a case with Jake Plattenberger there uh, out in California. Um, And then uh, after uh, two years, eight months there, my previous boss, Mark Byrne, called me up and said, hey, you know, there was a Supreme Court ruling. I have a new firm. That Supreme Court ruling, it was Tyrell, uh, essentially required him to go uh, a little bit more regional than he was. And he said, I need a Chicago office. I want to bring you on as a partner. What, what do you say about, you know, coming back over here? And uh, I called up Tor. Tor said, uh, that's great. <laughs> you know, great, good for you. That's a really good opportunity. Amazing. Uh, and so, you know, he, he, he said, no bad blood here. I jumped uh, over and, and helped Mark open his Chicago office. 
And um, I mean, that was a really fun experience, especially as somebody that always wanted to have his own law firm. I got to start a firm, you know, basically it was like a a mini portion of the firm. We opened the office here, hired some uh, uh, staff and, and an attorney and uh, built out a, a railroad cancer litigation. Um, and then I, I was asked to chair the firm's opioid uh, litigation. So, uh, you know, I drafted our complaints in, in multiple states. I think we had uh, municipal and county clients against the distributors and marketers of distributors, manufacturers of, of opioid narcotics in uh, Delaware, West Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania, South Carolina. We had a real huge presence there. Um, and so the, the directive was we want to keep these in state court. And so, uh, you know, I, I crafted a complaint that kept cases in state court, uh, which is the plaintiff's choice yep. if they if they want to strategize that way. And about a year in, despite the fact that, you know, I, I was really uh, having a good time doing all of that stuff, a former client of mine called me up and said, hey, I, st- I send a bunch of estate planning work to a attorney who's 67 and just retired. He said, do you have any interest in taking that work? You know, I, I had helped him and his wife get nearly a million dollars in, in a okay. TBM case. And he said, I know you'll do a good job and I, I need somebody that's going to take care of my clients. And um, I thought about it. I sat down with my family and I said, you know what? Uh, I really want to do this, but I need everybody's buy-in, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and, the big and, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, it, it was a very uh, supportive conversation. And then I, I put in my notice and um, I, I kind of felt bad about that. And, and Mark Byrne actually called me and I was sort of like afraid that he was going to be really angry. He gave me a great opportunity, yeah. really. Um, and, what ended up happening is that I don't think anybody could have understood more than him. And he told me, he said, you know, whenever I was working at the top injury firm in Milwaukee, uh, I decided that I was going to pack a bag, go to Manhattan and start my own firm. And everybody thought I was insane. He said, well, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I think it was a pretty good idea for me. He's like, so I totally get it, Joe. You know, if anybody can do it, you can, and and good luck. You know, we'll miss you here, but I'm rooting for you. And so that's that's my background. Now I have my own firm. Uh, I'm four years into it and uh, loving it. I, I really love it. Yeah, I, it's a, it's amazing sort of journey to hear. Um, you know, and I think the one thing that struck me hearing you talk about your journey is that you know, the relationships you made over time throughout your journey as a lawyer seem to kind of continue to propel you to different and interesting opportunities. Um, You know, was that was that sort of a a conscious thing on your part to develop relationships early on in your career? Or that just happened organically for you? It just happens organically. And I think that anybody that's an attorney, especially a litigator, that's done time in the trenches with other people, uh, especially during trial, you know, we weren't trying stop renders. You know, we, we weren't trying simple breach of contract cases. We were like in the Mariana Trench of the deep end of litigation, complex injury litigation. And so 
these are five-week trials. We're talking about incredibly complex fact scenarios involving 20 years of, of communication within an organization with multiple departments and a global presence. And our, our expert witnesses are epidemiologists, pharmacologists, uh, you, you name it. You know, uh, we, we went really, really uh, uh, deep into heavy scientific issues. And so, uh, you know, five weeks of, of pining over every tiny little detail and, and litigation like that. And, and you can't hide who you are, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, so you forge relationships naturally. Uh, it's just the way that it works. And so uh, that, that's the long, long answer. The short answer is it just occurred naturally. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I've certainly found the same in, in some of those high intense periods in, in working on a case where, you know, you develop obviously relationships with your own team, but also relationships with folks on the other side of the aisle, right? It's sort of a yeah. sense of, respect you all know what you're going through at the same time you all know the long hours and the hard work that that you're putting in and you know it's always been amazing to me how how those relationships can kind of continue on into the future long after you finish that litigation as well yeah yeah uh that, when you say that you know there's a specific attorney that comes to mind uh, her name is sherry knutson and i gotta hand it to her i mean she kicked our butt and in, in the actos trial and she was spot on uh, and if i saw sherry anywhere it would be exactly what you said oh hey how are you doing how is everything how's your practice how's life yeah. you know you just spend a lot of time in a courtroom with somebody and we we have clients to represent we are sworn enemies but you get to know a person it's just part of it yeah no it's it's exactly right um you know i'd love to talk about sort of jumping into your own firm and the types of clients that you deal with so you were doing PI, big complex PI cases, and then it sounds to me like you jumped into a new firm starting with estate planning work, um, mm -hmm. and then I guess gravitating now back towards personal injury. Tell me about some of the clients and, and your firm, you know, when you first started, the types of clients you did work for and what that looks like now for you. So, yeah, when I started my firm, uh, you know, when you start a personal injury firm, unless you have a huge reservoir of cash or, or uh, you know, the ability to get a line of credit, which is, you know, a lot more risk than, than I was willing to take it at the start. Uh, if you're lucky enough to get your phone ringing on day one, you're probably not going to see a penny for, for 10 months if things go ideally. And so uh, the hard part about starting an injury firm is that you need some way to make that gap bridgeable, right? And uh, when, when my former client called me up and he said, I, I need somebody to help me with estate planning, I told him, I said, I, I am interested, but I'm not going to do this forever. Uh, and, and, you know, I did some, some research on estate planning and what it would be like to be a quick study in that practice area. And I, I, I'll be honest, uh, I, I, I really, really, really did a lot of work to, to figure out the, the basics of estate planning. And then there were colleagues in, in a, a particular group that I am in. It's called IAIA, Illinois Association of Independent Attorneys. And there were a few of the estate planning attorneys in that group that really helped me through that initial period. But uh, those clients, I, I helped maybe six or seven of them before uh, injury cases started resolving. And, you know, I had a, a cushion of cash that I, I brought into the firm with me 
And so I, I was able to make it through that 10 month period. And then at the end of that 10 month period, the plan was always to transition that work to someone else. And I didn't want to leave the former client completely stranded. And so the, the, the attorney that helped me mostly learn the estate planning area and, and would take my calls when I had a problem I couldn't solve, yeah. she got the business. And, and so, you know, they have a very good relationship now and she gets a lot of business from him. Um, and so that's how I started. You know, I helped people uh, essentially plan for the worst. Uh, nobody makes an appointment with the Grim Reaper, but we all know the Grim Reaper is coming and they, they don't, they, you know, they, they knock unannounced or it knocks unannounced. Yeah. And so um, I, I help people with that, especially people that have special needs children, something that you have to do. If you have children at all and, and you own assets, get a trust, just do it. it. It seems like a lot of money, but it saves them a lot of money and a lot of headache later on down the road. Those are the clients I helped first. And then uh, as my, my personal injury side of my practice built, uh, I was able to leave that behind. And that's really my passion. I love personal injury litigation, especially plaintiff side. I think that there is no better area of practice because all my clients really, really, really need me. They really need me. That's why they're calling. And so the people that I help, you know, they just experienced something that most people never experienced, which is a traumatic injury that wasn't their fault. And unless you've been in that environment or worked very closely with people that have, have gone through such a circumstance, you just don't really understand how much of a wrecking ball it is in someone's life. Because now all of a sudden you're just thrown into this legal labyrinth. You've got insurance companies calling you. You know they know the law, but you don't know the law. On top of it, you're hurting. You can't get into work. Your car's blown into a thousand pieces. You got to get that fixed. You have all the. You're seeing all these expenses there, and you're not making any money because you're hurting. You don't know how long that's going to last, and you don't know whether you're going to recover. You don't even know what's fully wrong with you at first. And so the people call me. And they're in a state of crisis, really. They, you know, they're horribly traumatized. And I get to coach them through that. I get to help them navigate that absolute wilderness that, that they unfortunately find themselves in. So those are the people that I help. And then, um, you know, the types of cases we take, like I said, you know, I have experience with the, the Mariana Trench of the deep end of the pool for personal injury litigation. So I can take any case. I have some mass tort claims right now on file, um, but the vast majority of my cases currently are single instance cases. And because of that complex experience, litigating an auto accident case is far easier, I, I think, than, you know, so I, I, I was able to be a very quick study of the single instance world and even working with, those mass tort firms early in my career, they always let us take a one-off single instance auto case here and there just because it's good practice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'd, I'd be interested to hear sort of what those early meetings with your clients are like, right? I mean, because you describe it, people are, are coming to the legal labyrinth, not because they just want to deal with the legal issue, right? They've got a life issue that, that's impacting them and frankly, probably impacting, you know, other people around them, right? Family, work, other areas. You know, what are those early meetings like where you, I think you probably have to balance some of the, you know, the, the legal discussion and advice with some of the life discussion and advice, right, in, in terms of helping people navigate through that? 
Brian, you're asking that question. It's clear that, that you understand the intake is typically done. Intake, just for people listening, intake is that initial conversation with a potential client. Uh, something that I've learned is that intake is better done by non-lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> because like actually, why? <laughs> yeah, yeah. As I one, I could hear it in your question. You know, uh, when people are calling you in a state of crisis like that, uh, they don't want to hear how the sausage is made. They don't need you to prove to them that you know the law. And as lawyers, that's what we do every day. We prove to judges we know the law. We prove to defense counsel we know the law. We prove to insurance companies we know the law. And so we're just so hardwired to do that. But but these initial conversations, clients want to know that it's going to be okay. Clients want to know how much coverage is available. Clients want to know, am I going to be able to get the treatment I need? Am, am I going to recover? What does this look like to you? Because to them, it seem, it can seem like a very, very bad situation, but we see so much of it, you can tell them. I've seen people head on, lights out, put in comas for, for months. You know, I know you're hurting right now. I know you're afraid. I know you can't work, but it's going to be okay. You're, you're going to be fine. You know, we're, we're here for you. We'll support you. We'll, we'll, we'll put you through this. And ultimately, the, the empathy. I'm sorry this happened to you. Because it is, it's horribly traumatic. You know, you lose control over your vehicle. And and one of the things that's wild that I, I've, I've come to understand about my clients is that everybody, anytime you get behind the wheel of a vehicle, uh, you're engaging in a life-threatening activity. And and, and the, the wild thing is that, that we don't, it's not that we're ignorant of it. I think that subconsciously we compartmentalize that. And, and I think that we compartmentalize it instead of uh, being completely ignorant of it because you see it start to bubble through that barrier. You know, if you get in the car with the family and you drive to Florida for vacation, by the time you cross that panhandle, you're ready to murder everybody in the car. <laughs> and it's because you can't continue compartmentalizing the, the severe danger and risk that everybody's in. It starts to bubble through that barrier. Well, for my clients, it's like that barrier disappears. And, and so, you know, they've been in a vehicle where even if it's a small rear ender, they, they know that they heard a very loud sound. Their body was thrown. They lost control of their body, they lost control of their car. For however long that duration lasted, they felt like they were going to die. Yeah. And, and, and so, yeah, they, they become very, very, very afraid uh, of being in a vehicle moving forward. And, you know, um, when they call me, they, they just want somebody that understands. They just they just were in a situation that felt life threatening to them. Yeah. No. And and you know, I imagine obviously, as you mentioned, right? I mean, those those sort of thoughts and feelings and emotions will continue on for folks for quite some time. Um, you know, obviously, a, a, an injury case or any type of case you know, from a legal perspective can take some time to resolve. Uh, and so, you know. Can you talk a little bit about what your clients are kind of going through during that period, right? They, they come looking for help. You know, you're helping them. You're working the case through, you know, the system, trying to get a great outcome. It takes some time to get there. You know, what are some of the things you do to kind of help your clients along the way or, or communication tips and skills that, that you've developed over time to really kind of keep them informed and keep them guided along the way throughout the process? Leverage technology and, and stay in touch. 
uh, my system, I have a, a robust file management system and, you know, everybody is required to reach out to clients every 30 days, even if we don't hear from them. And so what does it look for, like for the client? It depends on the client. It depends on the severity of their injuries. Uh, clients that have more severe injuries, they can get into extremely dire financial circumstances. Uh, and they're very worried and, and uh, they can become, you know, obsessed with the outcome of the case because it so much yeah. is riding on it for them. Uh, and then there are other people that um, they're my, my ideal is that I get clients into recovery and we handle the rest so they don't have to worry about it. And so what it looks like for them is they're just recovering and they're managing that stress which is taking time from work, which is taking time from family to go to the doctor, however much is required to recover through that. So that's that's what it normally looks like for the client. And then, you know, in terms of the relationship with the firm, every 30 days we're reaching out. And then uh, we have a rule that anybody that contacts us and asks for an update or anything, even if they want to call and yell at us, they have to have a call back within 48 hours. It doesn't matter how busy you are. Uh, call them back. So, so uh, in terms of their relationship with the firm, we make ourselves very available for people. We, it's our job to keep them updated, and it's our it's our job to help them understand what's happening. However much time or however little time that takes, that's why they hired us. So, so that's what it looks like for them. Yeah, I mean, I I, I love that strategy, having essentially sort of hard and fast ground rules on communication, um, because you know everybody, I think has the intention of, of going into a case and keeping their clients updated. But as any attorney knows, right, when you're doing the day-to-day, -day, your days get long, you know, things are very busy. It's very hard to kind of keep everything straight. And, you know, I love how you've set that up within your own firm where it's, it's very clear. Every 30 days, you have to be in touch with the client if you haven't been already and your response time in the 48 hours. I mean, I, I love that implementation. Well, thanks. And, and I don't want to take full credit for that. I'm not some sort of a genius that's reinventing the wheel here. You know, uh, when I worked at the mass tort firms, we had tens of thousands of clients. Uh, so, so as you can imagine, a lot of people were reaching out and, and it takes really, really good attorney managers to handle that sort of volume. And um, two guys, Eric Terry, Steve Davis at THL, just wonderful managers and, and trainers. And, and those guys, they're the ones who said, I, I don't care what you've got going on. You, you don't think I'm busy? This client is, is in a really hard time right now. 48 hours, call them back, no excuses. And so, uh, you know, that's another thing that as an entrepreneur, I'm not sure I could have done it by just walking out of law school and starting a firm because it's stuff like that. You know, you said you really like hearing that. That's not original. That's something that I learned through practice with other firms that are well managed and well run. Yeah, look, I think you, you learn over time, right? There are obviously a lot of the big rocks you have to get right from a legal perspective, but all the other little things, they, they matter, right? I mean, they add up to a great experience, you know, whether it's a phone call every 30 days or a quick response to you know, something that comes in. Uh, those, you know, what seem like small, small pieces of the puzzle they wind up filling out the whole puzzle to a great client experience. So I love hearing that. Especially to lawyers, Brian. I mean, because to, to, I'm sorry. Yeah. Especially to clients because to lawyers, the things that matter to us getting a great financial recovery for, for the plaintiff as a personal injury lawyer, that's, 
That's really the measuring stick, right? How good am I at my job? But those things aren't really as important to clients as the, the, the million tiny little details like you just described. Uh, you know, how, how much integrity does this person have? How, how, how many times has this person told me something and backed it up? And how many times has this person reached out to me without me having to reach out to them just to see if I'm doing okay? Those are the things that really do make a difference. And at the end of the day, if you're not doing a good job taking care of your clients and you don't care about that, you shouldn't have a firm, right? You shouldn't have a firm. You should be working at a firm with staff that will do that for you. That has been trained to do that for you. Yeah. Because, it, you know, if you're going to be an entrepreneurial lawyer, you have to have a, a, an empathy for the clients and, and understand where they're coming from. Yeah, right. And look, at the end of the day, you know, as, as I think you've kind of aptly described, right, people want to be treated like a person, not like a number that's going through the system, right? And, oh. you know, the, to the extent you can get the little things right, it, it goes a long way to doing that. You know, I, I'd love to, you know, obviously, you know, in the area of law that you practice personal injury, right, there's some clear, clear rewards and added clear challenges as well. Um, I'd love to hear from you sort of what, what is the most rewarding aspect of the job? And then the other side of that, what has been the most challenging aspect of the job doing the work that you do? Gosh, most rewarding aspect of the job, uh, calling a client up after we've received a settlement and saying the check is on the way. That's, there's no better feeling. They've, they've successfully made it through, uh, and, and it's concluded. And, uh, Another beautiful thing about personal injury is that um, my my clients have always been happy. So, uh, you know, uh, it, it may not seem like a lot of money when you're reading the, the financial headlines, but but to to average folks, $5,000, $15,000 check, it, it matters. It, it matters to them, especially when they've suffered. You know, uh, you know, now, now you're talking about, you want to, you want to talk about a more significant resolution, hundreds of thousands, millions, those people need that money so badly just to make it through the rest of their lives. And it's like, you've just removed a million pounds off of their shoulders. And there's just, there's no better feeling than that. Knowing, knowing that they're okay, yeah. knowing that, that you've helped them be okay. That's the best part of the job for sure. Um, the most challenging part of the job, uh, callous, heartless insurance adjusters and defense stories. <laughs> uh, your client didn't need that fusion surgery. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, they were T-boned, but they should have looked both ways. You know, it's like, come on, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how they're trained and they see it all and, and they, it's a necessarily adversarial system, our justice system, because that's how we get to the truth, right? Uh, if I have somebody on the other side that is really holding our feet to the fire and, and you know, uh, we're pushing as hard as we can against that and, and walking on those coals, and then eventually, you know, it seems like some insurance companies require you to walk on water, you know, whatever it is you have to do, if you pull that off, then the truth is, and justice has been arrived at, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, that's obviously the, the most challenging part of being a personal injury lawyer 
being an entrepreneurial lawyer, there are a whole different set uh, of challenges and benefits and everything that come, comes along with, with, with that aspect of, of the practice of law. So my, my answer didn't include any of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, that, that's, that's kind of a great, I think, jumping off point maybe into the, the business and entrepreneurial side of, of running a firm. You know, I think, you know, you obviously, you've worked at a couple of firms originally. You started your yeah. own firm. You, you started with estate planning and then moved into, you know, personal injury where, you know, your passion is. You know, you, you've now been several years into running your, your own firm. You know, if you could talk to Joe from four years ago, starting his own firm, what, what would you tell him today? Jeez. Uh, it's all going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's all going to be okay. You're not insane. This was the right decision. Uh, you know, I, I, if I had to give myself advice looking back, um, I mean, really, it, it's like, Joe, what you're doing is probably an unreasonable risk, but it's the right risk to take. And, and I think that's really the challenge as an entrepreneur when you, you wait out into the world literally you know, on your own, is that you, you're jumping out of a plane and you've got to start building that parachute. You know, you don't, you don't know, uh, you, you know, you know what point B, the desired point B is, and you're at point A and, and you have no idea what the journey looks like, you know? And, and so, um, that's, that, that's the advice is I think that it, it's not as much risk as it seems. Um, that's one thing I've learned and, and uh, I, I'm glad to say that it worked out. Um, but yeah, uh, anybody that's thinking about doing this, I, I think what I did, which was a really smart thing to do. And so I don't need to give myself this advice in hindsight, but anybody that's thinking about taking this on, do a very honest assessment. Take a look at not just your life, your bank account, but also yourself. You know, what, what kind of a lawyer are you? Are you the kind of lawyer that'll take the garbage out if that's what needs to happen? Are you are you, are you the kind of lawyer that'll, that'll stuff envelopes if your your legal assistant needs to check out half a day and something has to be put in the mail? Do you go above and beyond or do you just kind of do the bare minimum? You know, be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. Um, secondly, you know, Check in with your family. What What is your life like? Can, if, when you're the only one that everything depends upon for your business, your career, do the other aspects of your life have space for that? And so one of the things that I did when I made this decision, I mentioned it earlier, that I advise everybody to do you have to get, and this is a big concept in management in general, get buy-in. Get buy-in from your family. Get get buy-in from those people that are going to be there with you through it. If you have children, it's not a deal breaker, but they can't give you buy-in. And they need time, right? They need your time. They have to have it. They depend on you for survival. So have a very honest conversation with your partner about what level of sacrifice you can make in your life because – while it's everything 
it's cracked up to be starting your own business and being an entrepreneur. It's not as risky as it is. Everyone thinks in hindsight with the benefit of hindsight, I can say that, but it is everything it's cracked up to be. It's a lot of work, uh, you know, and, and you're going to have to learn things, right? You're, you're going to have to stuff those envelopes. You're going to have to, I didn't have a bookkeeping class ever. If you have an MBA, right? Do that. Is that part of your assessment? If, if you have business training, knowing accounting is going to be extremely helpful for you. Knowing marketing is going to be extremely helpful for you. What are the quality of your relationships? I mean, I still get business from, from Tor. He, helps him, he just sent me a case last week. You know, are, are those people going to support you, right? People in your community, are they going to call you up? And um, just take a very honest look at everything and do a risk assessment, essentially. If you have a gigantic pool of money, your risk is lower, but what are your what are your time constraints like? Because building something from scratch, even if that just involves being your HR department and hiring and filling out a team and systematizing and developing training structures and training modules so that you can put butts in seats to do everything for you, that doesn't happen overnight. And if you have to start it from scratch, do you have what it takes? You know, and I, I don't want to say, do you have what it takes? I think everybody, when their back is against the wall, will have what it takes. Do you want to give what it takes? Because it does require sacrifice. It does. And, and if you're not that type of attorney right now that goes the extra mile, right, even though you don't have to, maybe continue working for somebody else. That, that, <laughs> that's my advice. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, that's, that's, that's great advice, you know, as somebody who has been through the early fires already, right, and now is, you know, seemingly on the other side of that with a, a thriving firm. I mean, I love a lot of things that you mentioned there, right? I mean, I, I, I went through that risk assessment myself when I launched, you know, with others, Evident Law. And, you know, it is so important, as you mentioned, to get buy-in from anybody else who it, it may affect, right? It's, it's typically not just your decision going to impact a lot of other people that you may have in your life and, and around you. And, you know, I think the way I think about risk is, is like you, right? How, how can you sort of de-risk, you know, the, the venture as much as you can when you go into it, right? One way to do that is to try to get buy-in uh, from everybody around you and, and be on the same page. You know, the other way that, that you know, is interesting in sort of hearing your story is, you know, maintaining some of those relationships that you've made over time, right? I mean, I don't know if you were thinking about this when you launched your own firm, but it, just hearing you, it sounds to me like if you were to launch your own firm and then you wanted to maybe go back and work with somebody else, so you, you've had developed enough relationships over time that that may have, may have been a possibility for you. Um, you know, how important has it been to you to kind of keep those relationships over time throughout your career? It's been essential. And, and for so many more reasons than just getting clients. When you're, when, I mean, I started as a solo. And so when, when you're just one guy doing everything at your firm, you're going to encounter legal problems. It's just part of the practice of law that, that you know, you, you've never encountered before, you don't understand. And so those relationships give you people that you can call and, and think through things out loud. And, and I think that's one of the best things about practicing laws. You, you develop, even if you don't spend time in the trenches, you develop relationships by thinking through things creatively. So it's been essential in that respect, but forget, forget legal relationships. Yeah. 
my firm has been successful because of personal friendships. Those relationships are huge. And, and what's been wild is that uh, I, I say that once you become an entrepreneur, you sort of see that there's like this bell curve of people. I don't know if anybody remembers what a bell curve looks like. Uh, you know, we're going back to, to, to statistics here, but there's like this, this two and a half percent of people. And these people love you very, very much. And they want you to succeed so badly, but they love you so much that if you tell them what it's like being an entrepreneur, they're going to be worried about you. They're going to be like, are you, are you go, go work for somebody else. This is such a huge risk. And so you don't really want to talk to those people. And then there's like this, this other 95%. This is the majority of the bell curve. And what's wild is that those people don't really want you to succeed. Right. They don't. And then there's this, there's, there's this other two and a half percent. And now this two and a half percent, you, gosh, being an entrepreneur has taught me that these are the people that are in your corner. And those people in my life, they're the ones that made my firm work. They sent me business. You know, it's like as soon as they knew I had a firm, I started bringing in more clients than I ever had in my life. You know, uh, my future sister-in-law, uh, she, she sent me a bunch of cases within the first three months of, of my firm starting. Uh, friends of mine that were, you know, born and raised in Chicago, those guys have, have really, they're just, they're just people that, that want you to succeed. And, and, and so, um, that's another thing about the entrepreneurial journey that I've really appreciated is that it, it teaches you who your friends are and it teaches you who really loves you. And then you sort of start to realize that those folks in the middle, they're fun to see every once in a while and hang out with, but take them or leave them, you know, yeah. <laughs> you realize what's important in, in life. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost sort of finding your tribe, right? P people who are, you know, on the one end of the bell curve, like you said, people who sort of love you unconditionally. Right. And they're, they're always going to want you to be safe. I know, I know exactly yeah. that, that feeling. Um, and then others who, you know, again, are, are sort of your, your tribe in a, in a way that they're there to kind of help push you along, right? That may be people who have either done what you've done and understand and can empathize with that experience and know what it takes to do it or other people who are just kind of helping you along the way and striving for greatness. That was, that was, so that insight is interesting because in that two and a half percent of people that are, you know, coming to your aid and support and you realize, you know, they're, they're in your corner, no matter what that, that two and a half percent that there are different personalities in there. And, and uh, one, one personality type that's in there are the people that know what you're going through and have done it before. And it doesn't necessarily even have to be a law firm. It can just be anybody. It's any type of entrepreneur that has started a business, right? And the best advice I've ever gotten <laughs> is that you should not really talk about the stresses of being an entrepreneur with anyone that has not been an entrepreneur because they will not get it. And, you know, there have been times where I've mentioned, you know, to the people that are in the two and a half percent that are worried about my safety, the kind of money that it requires to run a law firm. And they're like, you, you spent how much on what? <laughs> <laughs> Put that into a 401k. Right. <laughs> what are you thinking? And so you just learn real quickly. Yeah. It's like, you just can't have certain conversations with certain people. And so that's one thing that's great about this podcast is that you're, you're, you're creating a platform 
for people to tune in and, and have that conversation, even if they're not one of the people being interviewed, they can hear it from other folks. And it's a beautiful thing. That's why I agreed to do this. I, I thanks for putting this podcast together. Yeah, no, look, I appreciate yeah. that. I mean, that, that is, that is really the mission of this podcast yeah. really to shine a light sort of not just on the, the client work that you're doing and the impact it has on people's lives, but all the things that you go through as an entrepreneur and a business owner, right? That there's more yeah. to legal work than just the legal work and they, they come with their own rewards and challenges. Um, so look, I, you know, one, one thing I, I'd love to ask you is, you know, obviously you find your tribe, right? You make, you make the leap, you're, you're in the trenches. You started with estate planning work on the personal injury side. So get some of the nitty gritty, right? How did you land your first couple of clients? You know, how do you land them now? I know we talked a little bit about relationships, but any other insights you can give folks on how they might go about, you know, kind of launching their firm and, and getting their first clients? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this relates back to that risk assessment that I was talking about earlier. I mean, this is the most important aspect of your risk assessment. How are you going to get the phone ringing? And, and again, you know, looking back, what I did is I didn't, I didn't do this risk assessment very well. I, I didn't, I mean, it was, it was dumb. I, I didn't have that strategy in place. And I'm very, very grateful again for the fact that there were people in my life that just referred people my way. Um, and so that's what worked for me. Other folks, they have really, really good relationships with clients and those clients follow them. Uh, I know that in personal injury, one of the big issues for a lot of firm owners is they're afraid that the lawyers are going to poach clients. I didn't do that. I did have one. My first client was a client that I brought with me from THL to Mark J. Burnham Partners to my own firm. But it was like a really close friend's dad. Okay. And, and the close friend's dad, you know, he didn't want to be represented by anybody else because he, he knew me on a personal level. Um, and so that was my first case. It wasn't my first settlement. It wasn't my first it was, it was in, it was actively in litigation. It was a slip and fall on an icy staircase. You want to talk about a, a tough case in the city of Chicago because, you know, building owners, landowners, they don't have liability for slip and falls on, on natural accumulations of snow and ice because there's so much snow and ice yeah. for policy reasons. If they had liability, then everybody would be out there doing their best to clear up snow and ice, but there would still be a million and one lawsuits. It's snowing and, and icy all winter long here. Uh, but then they also don't have liability for negligently clearing snow and ice. And so I had a slip and fall on an icy staircase and there was no attempt to, to clean up any of the ice on that icy staircase. It was a tough liability case. And I honestly took the case as a favor to my friend and his dad because he was really, really hurt. Um, and, and, you know, through some good luring, we had an architect go out, take a look at the stairs and the client himself, he said, you know, there was something wrong with those stairs. You couldn't see it, but he said, I'm telling you, there was something wrong with those stairs. And that's why we ended up accepting the case. And I, I, when I brought it over to Mark, I said, Mark, I need to get an architect out there. He said, well, what are we waiting for? Get him out there. So I uh, got the architect out and he said, 
these stairs are out of dimension in five different ways. <laughs> and I mean, I, did, I mean, you looking at them, yeah. you couldn't really see it. But what what really was the case is that there was such a downward slope on the stairs that walking down the stairs without any ice or snow, it was already a hazard yeah. because you're you're more likely to roll an ankle. They, you know, it was out of the building code. Uh, but when you put ice on top of that, hey, good luck. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. it sounds like it turns into almost a slide coming down those stairs, right? With the, the it, it's it's ultra hazardous, yeah. and, and so you know he paid the price. He had a torn quadricep. That was my first case that came over. Uh, but then you know within like I said, the first month I, I had uh, my sister in law sent me uh, referred me a case where a, a lady was walking across the street. She had the walk signal, and and a car made a left turn and hit her. Um, Poor lady. Uh, and then, you know, I had another case where um, another young lady was was riding her bicycle to work and uh, going through a green light. Uh, met a van, made a left turn and nearly killed her, um, you know. And, and so uh, the thing about personal injury is that when somebody is in a circumstance like that, they very quickly realize they need a lawyer. They need it. And so... Um, when, when there are clients that are available, uh, unfortunately for them, we're like the firefighters. We don't, we don't want your house to burn down, but if it, if it catches fire, give us a call. So th that's how I got my, my, my cases, just my, my sister-in-law and had personal relationships with people and she has a wide network. And so she would see these things and hear about these things in her network. And, and she referred me. She said, hey, you know, this guy's litigated billion dollar litigation successfully. I think he can help you through this bicycle case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and, you know, again, th those those relationships over time become so key. I think it, particularly in the early days, like you said, getting started. And how do you think about sort of diversification in in new cases and clients coming in the door today? Is it any different? I mean, I know some folks, they've got a great referral pipeline and and that's what they do. Other folks. They do a lot of marketing. Uh, some folks are somewhere in between, right? Some referrals, some marketing. How do? Where do you fall on that spectrum? Do you think about diversifying at all in terms of your client sources? Always be marketing. <laughs> As many different channels of cases that you can obtain, open every single channel that you possibly can. Some of them are more expensive than others, but that that's the answer. Yes, get get as many different sources of cases as you can, uh, because that that that's how you keep the lights on and so you know um for me like i said i did not do an adequate risk assessment for how i would get cases and i was dependent on reputation um but you know where i am now yeah i as many different channels as i can yeah um for, for sure and, and another thing that i i will say that is really really interesting is that above all else do a good job do a good job you can never sacrifice that ever, even if that means you have to hit the brakes on growing a little bit, right? Even if you if you can afford to grow, there there is an analysis of whether or not you should grow. Do not sacrifice doing a good job because my phone, after a certain period of time, it just starts ringing. And it starts ringing because you've helped so many people so well that they're your best referral sources. Now you have not just your sister-in-law referring you cases, but a bunch of people that have a good lawyer. 
and they know what it's like to be in that circumstance. And so when they see someone else that's in that circumstance, they immediately call them and say, listen, I, I've got a guy that'll take care of you. Yeah. Yeah. It, that, that's, that's the best source. So you have to have all the sources, but that's the best source. And you don't have that source unless you do a good job. Yeah. It's almost as if like, you know, the world sort of paying you back, right? I mean, you, you, you do a great job. You do all the things you need to get done from a legal perspective. You create a great client experience, doing the things like you're doing, making sure everybody is up to date on where their cases stand. And at the end of the day, like you said, I mean, former clients, you know, more often than not, when you do that, will become sort of evangelists almost for your firm um, and, and be a great source of, of future business for you. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I call that being a go-giver, right? You know, there, there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of education in business schools about how the takers make, right? Uh, and there's even a lot on TV about how the, the, the junkyard dog lawyer is the lawyer you want to hire. I've had clients tell me that. You know, when I first talked to you, you, you seemed really nice and, and approachable. And I kind of wanted somebody that was going to be mean and aggressive, right? Uh, but but what, what happens in reality is that those people quickly are isolated and nobody wants to work with them. And the one person that is responsible for delivering an opinion, the judge that's going to help you or a jury that's going to award your client a lot of money or even a defense counsel that's going to decide to settle or an insurance judge that's going to decide to settle. Do you think that they're more likely to want to help the lawyer that is making their life difficult or the lawyer that's making their life as easy as possible? And so you can be a really staunch advocate and also be a good guy and, and or a good gal. And, and, and it's the same with clients, you know, um, uh, the more you give, the more you get. Yeah. It's just, just the way that it works. I mean, it, so everything that they're teaching in business schools these days, I'm not so sure about it. And at least with my personal experience, uh, it's a case study N of one, but I look at other people that have my attitude and it always pays off. It always pays off. Yeah, go-giver. Go I have not heard that one before, but I, I like that term, go-giver. Um, you know, we, Joe, we've talked uh, obviously about the rewarding aspects of running your firm. We've talked about some of the challenges of running your firm. You know, I think for, for folks who are listening who maybe kind of want to get ahead of some of the challenges and plan for some of those challenges, you know, we like to ask a question to folks, which is if there was sort of, if you had a magic wand and could solve sort of one issue in running your firm, like what would that be for you? it's what's funny is that it's different depending on where you are in, in your firm trajectory. And so me right now, cause that's, that's, I'm taking the question literally me right now, if I could wave a magic wand, I would have a very detailed training module so that I could very quickly scale and, and, and build my team right now. I have a, a paralegal that is a management level paralegal. She's at the higher end of the market She's going to be my right hand. And then I have a legal assistant. And um, I, I said it earlier in this podcast, but, but where I am right now on my growth trajectory, I could scale this thing very, very quickly. I could get a bunch of clients if, if I wanted. Um, but I need to know that I have people that are, are bought in to that go-giver concept people that are willing and, and people that just naturally care about people as much as I do and can execute 
tasks competently. If I could wave one magic wand, that's it. Build me a training module that is extremely detailed so that I could credibly say to any of my team members, that question could be answered by the training module. Why are you asking me? And then a bunch of competent people who are go-givers and really do care about this work. That's the magic wand wish that I would love answered if if I could have one right now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah not, but if you'd asked me at the beginning of my firm. That's what I was going to go. Yeah, what about Joe four years ago? What would you, what would you Joe four years ago. Um, Joe four years ago. <clears throat> I mean, <laughs> more money is always better. You know, I thought I had enough money uh, to do it, but with like $40,000 in available capital, which sounds like a lot of money to people, but when you're running a business and you're paying your own bills too, on top of it, that money goes <laughs> and you're litigating cases, which is really expensive. Another thing that I've learned is that, you know, banks don't really want to lend you money until you just don't need it. <laughs> and then as soon as you don't need it, now they're like, here, please take our money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, money would have been one thing, you know, have, having a huge uh, amount of, of, of liquid capital. Um, the other thing that I would have given myself advice, which is a funny question because my fiance, I'm, I'm coaching her through starting an acupuncture practice right now. And so what I'm telling her is build your systems early, build, build your systems early, you know, get, get, get your file management system up and running. Uh, you know, think, think about what it looks like for various employees in your organization down the line and, and what, what the automation of that task flow looks like. Do it, do that work. Uh, build, get get your your accounting done. One thing that I didn't do, I did I did not have my bookkeeping for for eighteen months, and I called this poor bookkeeper and I said, you know, hey, you know, can you can you clean this up? And she said, I hate you, and yes, <laughs> and this is what it's going to cost. <laughs> and you know, I I could have done without that stress. And now that I know how all of that works, you know, it's just an easy thing to do if you set it up appropriately. So hire a bookkeeper, set up your books, and then maintain them diligently. Uh, what else? Um, for a website, so, you know, I tried to have somebody build a website for me, and that's been a point of frustration, really. You know, I finally have a website that I really, really like, but um, just do a Wix site or, or something simple. Do a digital business card. You don't need to have the, the best website in your market to start. Keep it simple, right? Keep it simple and, and, and get that done before you, you launch because as soon as you launch, everybody's going to want to find you somewhere. And, and so at least give them that. Uh, lastly, get, get a Google business page. I mean, I call them the algorithm gods. If you don't have a Google business page, your phone is not going to ring. So, so get that done. It, it doesn't take very long. It's very simple. And, and make sure it's accurate. Maintain it. Yeah. No, I love that, right? I mean, it's it's really sort of focusing on some of the fundamentals that are really going to move the ball for you, right? A lot of folks kind of want to focus on the, the shiny object and the cool new hack or whatever it might be, but there are always sort of you know, three, four, five fundamentals that you have to get right before you should even worry about any other shiny object that may be out there from either a marketing perspective or a technology perspective. So I love, I love that viewpoint. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, like you said, everybody always thinks about the, the end result, the finished product, but build the skeleton, build the, build the framework, build the structure, and, and then, you know, worry about the facade of the building afterwards. 
the full structure will, will fall into place as long as you have that 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 underlying bones of, of the building, the rest of it falls into place. But but get that skeleton together. Really focus on those systems and even your tech, right? I mean, what, what kind of an office system are you going to have? What kind of a phone system are you going to have? And that goes back to the conversation earlier. If you're not the kind of attorney that can stuff envelopes, are you the kind of attorney that can program a phone system? Are you the kind of attorney that can network your your faxing and your 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 printing and and all of those capabilities? Probably not. So you know, just let somebody else do that for you and keep collecting a salary. Yeah. Well, look, Joe. I mean, it's it's been amazing to hear about you know your journey and the work you do for your clients. Um, how impactful that is on their lives. Can tell how passionate you are about the work that you do, and I, I love hearing love that it. in your Thanks. voice. And, Thanks. you know, again, sharing your story as an entrepreneur and a business owner, you know, I think that, again, there's a lot of folks out there who maybe are thinking about starting their own firm, but aren't quite sure how to do it, whether to take that jump. And so I think, you know, you shared a lot of insights and, and a look under the hood into how you did it and some of the things that you thought about when you were launching your firm, both in the beginning and, and today. And so I think it's going to be very impactful for folks to, to hear your story. Um, you know, we like to end with two questions that we ask everybody. One's kind of a, a lighthearted question and the other, the other is a good way to wrap up. Lighthearted side of things, favorite yeah. movie of all time. Oh gosh. Uh, depends on my mood, but I have to say the, the one that I always love is, um, the hustler. Have you ever seen that movie? I have, it's about, yeah. yeah, it's about uh fast Eddie Felsen pool shark. And what I love about that movie is that it's actually a really deep conversation about having a winner's attitude. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I love that. Um, last question. If, if folks could remember one thing about you and your firm, what would you want that to be? That we care, that we care and we do a good job. And, you know, we, I have three models, figure it out, make it happen, do a good job. You know, yeah. and, and part of doing a good job requires you to outwork the competition. Yeah. That's, that's it, you know? And so, so we work really hard. We're smart and we care. That's one, that, that's it, I, that we care. Yeah. We're a caring firm. Well, Joe, thanks so much for your time. I mean, maybe you could tell folks where they can learn a little bit more about you and, and the work that you do. Oh, uh, yeah. KramerInjuryLaw.com is my website. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Uh, LinkedIn. I, I'd say I'm, I'm more active on LinkedIn. I interact with others a lot on LinkedIn. But because of the firm trajectory right now, until I have that team built out, uh, I don't really have the time to post a ton on Twitter and LinkedIn and, and stuff. But I will interact on LinkedIn. And, and if people like yourself, that's how we met. You sent me a message. Yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best way. I really like that platform. It's a, it's a pure platform. You know, I think that some of the other social medias are a little bit of a hellscape, but LinkedIn is still a pure place. <laughs> <laughs> For now. <laughs> now. Hopefully into the foreseeable future. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, Joe, thanks again so much for, for taking the time. It was a pleasure hearing your story. Hey, Brian, thanks very much for having me on. Thanks a ton for doing this. When I was starting out, I wish there was a podcast like this that I could listen to. I think what you're doing is a great thing.